Hello, and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. In this episode, we're continuing with the series, Spiritual Warfare. It's based on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Here's Senior Pastor Perry Duggar. Do you remember being brought back to life? Do you remember what it felt like to be dead and to be brought back to life? Thank you. We continue our series on spiritual warfare. I would ask you which piece of armor is this week, but I'm sure you can see it behind me. I'm going to have to tell them to hold off so I can trick you a little bit. So today we're dealing with the helmet of salvation. And we are reading from Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 13 is where we will begin. It's on 946 in this Bible available at Brookwood. And we begin at 13. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. I think we live in a time where evil abounds, don't we? Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet. And the theme verse for today that I took from the New International Version, they... I think the NIV does a better job of actually reflecting the armor, but it just says, take the helmet of salvation. In other words, pick it up, put it on. The Roman helmet, the helmet worn by Roman soldiers, was usually made of bronze, though iron and leather were also used. It was equipped with cheek pieces, like you see our soldier here in the drawing, and these were hinged to the sides of the, of the helmet, and they were tied underneath with strips of leather, which held the helmet on the head, but also protected the sides of, of the soldier's face. There was often an ornamental plume or a crest like that, but those weren't worn in battle. A curved piece, and you can see a hint of it there, but a curved piece was on the back, and it protected the back of the neck, the upper part of the shoulders, and the upper back from arrows that would fall from above. A helmet protects what part of our bodies? The head. From, and it, for Roman soldiers, it protected their heads from crippling or deadly blows that were often dealt with a large, a two-handed double-edged broadsword that measured three to four feet in length. So it was a frightening piece of weaponry. But what's the spiritual significance of the helmet of salvation? Well, what is within our heads? Yeah, physically, what is it? Our brains. Sometimes we act as though there's not much up there. (laughs) But that's where it sits if we have one. And the brain is the center of our thinking and our feeling. So this piece of armor protects 
the mental and the emotional aspects of our lives from assaults. Which do you think is more powerful in your life, your mental or your emotional aspects? Which do you think? Anybody disagree with that opinion? Mental or emotional? Let me see mental, raise your hands. The optimists in the room. Let me see emotional. Emotional by far, emotional by far. Think about how you make decisions. It should be mental and the mind of Christ helps us, but emotional has more sway. In fact, emotional sways us without us even being aware it's happening. Another New Testament verse written by the same author, Paul, gives us insight into the specific symbolic meaning of the helmet. And this is found in 1 Thessalonians. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. The contemporary English version puts it this way. Our firm hope that we will be saved is our helmet. So the helmet of salvation represents confident hope of eternal life. The English word hope, which is from a Greek word, elpis, means to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. It also means anticipation, but it's a positive anticipation or expectation or confidence. See, a lot of us use the word hope for wishful thinking. I hope I get promoted. I hope my team wins. We use it in that example, in that instance. But that's not an accurate use of the word, at least from its Greek origin. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's a certain expectation based on faith. So a Christian's hope is a realistic dependence on God to keep his promise to deliver us through this life with its difficulties and to take us to an eternal unending reward in heaven. Satan's forces attack our minds. Satan's forces suggest that we should not trust God, we should have doubts about his promises, and that results in us being insecure about our salvation and eternal life tomorrow. The devil and his demons are waging the battle for our minds because our minds control our thoughts and our thoughts control our lives. But hope withstand Satan's attacks in several ways. First, by reassuring when suffering. Satan and his demonic soldiers seek to discourage us by pointing out our problems, our poor health, our painful relationships, other negative situations in our lives. Anybody have any negative situations going on in their lives? Raise your hand if you got anything negative, anything at all negative. I think all of us, most of the time, have something, you know, there's always something good, something not so good. That's 
life on this earth. But the reason that Satan's forces keep reminding us, keep pointing this out, trying to focus our attention on these problems is to cause us to lose confidence in the care and the concern of our Heavenly Father. Remember, the devil is a deceiver. He wants you to encounter life with a false set of expectations so that you will consider yourself mistreated by God when difficulties occur. See, Satan wants us to think that if we're children of God, then all should go well for us because we belong to God. Unfortunately, there's some distorted theology that advocates that perspective. I wonder what happens to people who are following that theology when their lives turn in a negative direction. Does it feel that they have been abandoned by God? If we're seduced into thinking that God's children should never suffer disappointment or pain, then we will be discouraged and we will end up doubting God's goodness whenever problems arise. When we experience hardship and difficulties, which many of us raised our hands that we, ha- we are and certainly have, then we become disappointed in God, disillusioned, angry, even resentful toward him. And some of you may feel that way towards God today because of what you are enduring in your lives. In reality, the Bible doesn't promise a life without pain. In fact, it asserts the opposite. Just before his arrest, Jesus warned his followers, his disciples, that he would soon leave them and they would experience suffering and they would be scattered because we know that persecution was coming. I don't know how much they anticipated it at that moment. But look at John 16, Then he told him this. I have told you all this, given you this warning, so that you may have peace where in your life? Does anybody see that? So you can have peace in your circumstances? Where? Anywhere else? Did Jesus ever promise peace in this world? Never, never. But he did promise peace within, not peace without. You'll have peace in me. Here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. It doesn't say because I have improved the world, because I have perfected this world, It actually is saying that you can have peace and you can take heart because this world is not in control of you. I am. I I wouldn't want to disappoint y'all, but no one escapes alive. Do you know that? I had a lady one time in a, previous church, who 
wanted to argue with me because she heard me say something about people being sick. And she said, you're teaching false, falsely. I said, really? She said, if they have enough faith, they won't be sick. Well, outside the window was a graveyard. And I said, what about that bunch? And she said, what? I said, well, how'd they get there? Oh, you mean that they all died of illness? I said, yeah. She said, they didn't have to die of illness. You can just be well, and then you step into eternity. I said, I don't know anybody that passed that way. Doesn't sound, I said, did you know, by the way, that old age is a disease process? She wasn't too happy with that statement. But we agreed to disagree, and she went on. The proper perspective on trials and troubles is that this fallen, corrupted world produces pain and sorrow. Yes, it it also has its share of joys and happiness and, and positive things, but in this world, we will experience pain and sorrow. But as we rely on God in the midst of our suffering, we grow in intimacy with him and our trust for him strengthens. And for that, we can rejoice. Romans chapter five. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. Anybody developed endurance without facing some difficulties? We don't even develop endurance physically without some pain and some effort. But when we face trials and problems and we learn to endure, what this means is that we resist, we don't give into trials, we persevere. And endurance develops strength of character. And so what that is, is that we become mature, we become tested and proven. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. See, as we endure these difficulties, we experience God in the midst of it. And even though we're suffering, and suffering may be life-threatening, we become more sure of who God is in the midst of our problems. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Troubles don't mean God doesn't love, doesn't care. And it's actually in those problems that we experience his love. We know that the spirit of God has been placed within us. 
We may have some fear about what we're facing, but we know that it's not God who is uncaring, who is cruel, who is unconcerned with us. We just know because of the spirit within us. God's promise is to remain with us in suffering, to strengthen us in times of trouble, to replace our preoccupation with our pain with an awareness of his presence, his love, his peace. Isaiah 43 says, when you go through the, the flood, I'll be with you. Hebrews 13, 5 says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will not abandon you. And when we survive hardship with God's help, it strengthens our ability to trust him. As future trials come, we're able to believe more fervently his promise of eternal life. Look at 2 Corinthians. That's why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. You know anybody like that? I have some friends, they're not, their bodies are not what they used to be but their spirit's stronger. And as we age, the bodies don't improve. I mean, some of y'all may be in the gym and working out and all that stuff, but most of us lose some hair and gain some faith. (laughs) We get a little hippie, but we also get able to trust God more, but we realize this world will not be perfected. But our strength, our faith is being perfected and it'll be ultimately perfected. But this world is gonna slip away from us. Boy, we try to hold on to it, don't we? We try to plant our feet so deeply and hold on but you try as you might, it, it slips away as we age. But see, the proper perspective for us is to long to be freed from these bodies. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. I, I'm surprised how quickly I reached. Well, 65 is in about two weeks. I'm surprised how quickly I got here. Joe, I remember you in your 20s and you had a thick beard and wore glasses. You still, you look good. You probably look better now. But you're gonna lose ground. (laughs) I know I'm losing ground. God didn't intend for us to hold on to this world. He intends us to cling to Christ to long for that ultimate intimacy that's greater than what we are experiencing now. Our present troubles are small. Wrote a man in prison. 
who knew his days were numbered and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we see now. We fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Have you learned that lesson? I know some of you that have, that have faced serious illness. But you wouldn't trade the suffering for more security on this earth, would you? Because the peace is in Christ. It's not in a perfect body. It's not in a perfect life. It's not in a perfect job or a perfect house or a perfect spouse. It's in Christ. Are you assured of God's love for you and acceptance of you despite the difficulties you're encountering? See, it's a different way of thinking. Hope resists Satan's attacks by removing fear of God's rejection. One of Satan's most successful schemes is deceiving believers into thinking they've lost or could lose their salvation. See, Satan wants people who lack a relationship with Jesus to be sure they have one or that one's unnecessary. That's new age faith. God's within you. See, there's one side that says there is no God. There's another side that says, oh, there is God, but he's already in you and you need do nothing. But we don't enter a relationship with God without redemption and reconciliation. So this idea that God's just planted within you, it's not accurate, it's not true, but it causes people to have this false assurance or this lack of concern. So Satan wants those who are unsaved to be sure they are or don't need to be And he wants those who are Christian that are saved to be insecure about their salvation. Two different ends. Satan wants us to fear that God will reject us, which eliminates any motivation we would have to deny sin, to battle Satan. Why would we do that if we serve a God who will discard us? And the devil produces this insecurity by deceiving us about how we are saved. He confuses our understanding of salvation by grace by mixing in the requirement of works. It's interesting sometimes when you hear teaching on grace that sure is filled with a lot of behaviors. So we think we must meet a set of unachievable standards to be accepted by God. Even though we can recite correctly that forgiveness is free, we know that grace is unmerited favor, and yet we live as though we must earn God's mercy through perfect performance. We may have been mistaught by people who wanted us to behave. Could have been pastors, 
might have been parents who used God to try to make us obedient. That's not biblically correct. And it's not from God. It promotes a works righteousness which creates insecurity. And a result of thinking that there's a hard to please God watching over us closely, many, many believers are overwhelmed by guilt, overcome by shame, immersed in some kind of addictive behavior because of this diabolical false teaching. But Jesus was very clear about the security of our salvation. Look at John 10. My sheep listen to my voice. Now that's key. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my father has given them to me and he's more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the father's hand and the father and I are one. This verse means that if you, if you have been born again, forgiven by God, nothing, no one can snatch you away from him. And you know who that includes? That includes you. That includes you. You can do nothing to stop God from loving you. God's not ashamed of you and he knows everything. Some of this other stuff is, is just, comes from what we believe out of the way we were raised. You had a stern father, a critical father, an absent one. You lived under a lot of abuse at home. You tend to project that on God. And only the spirit can change that view. Transformation prayer helps. You can call the care ministry and find out where that can, you can receive that or the Be Encouraged house in Simpsonville. But it helps you substitute, substitute some of these lies for what's true. Because the problem is all of you can quote these verses about a salvation by grace and yet you live under the lie that your salvation is behavior dependent. Boy, it sure feels different when you know that you're accepted by God and you can't do anything to cause him to leave you. You know, some of you don't ever have trouble with that. You were good kids. I don't, don't tell my wife, but my wife was a good kid. She wouldn't have even been around me if she had known me young. I was a bad kid. But I confused. I mean, I was the kid the teachers did not want. And yet I was the elementary school valedictorian. And they couldn't figure it out. Because I was always in trouble. I was the kid, you know, that I'd go in the class, I mean, go in the hall sometime and here's my parents. They've been called up for a meeting. 
How many of y'all ever showed up at school and there's your parents at the, at the counselor's office? <laughs> there's a number of us. Oh, it was tough. And I mean, but I deserved all that. I mean, I got spanked 32 times just in the sixth grade. <laughs> now, now, don't expand it too much because it, it, that's only single licks. And some of it is they would let you barter detention hall into licks. So we had a, a trading forum there, you know. So, so I wasn't staying for detention hall, but so I walked out, but I couldn't sit down anywhere, but I got, but, but I was a bad kid. I mean, I mean, oh Lord, some of the stuff was never discovered. They tore that school down not long ago. It hid my secrets, but, um, but you know what? I had a father who was always ashamed of me, embarrassed by me. I had a mother who loved God, loved me, and never said she was ashamed of me. Never said she was ashamed of me. And that's what God's saying about you. He is never ashamed of you. Romans 8, 35. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, meaning despite enduring, experiencing all these things is what he's saying. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, nor, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Do you know that feeling? No circumstance, no failure, no shortcoming, no sin, no matter how serious can cause God to reject any person he has forgiven, adopted, accepted, and loves permanently. You know, it's amazing how love can motivate and spankings don't. I remember at the same time, my teachers would have these conclaves over me. And so you'd get these, some professors in there and all these, well, this was, you know, like middle school, so not. And so some of the teachers would say, He's the best student I have and the most polite. And then the others would say, he's terrible. He runs around the room. He, he, he has these outbursts. I can't control him, can't keep him in his seat, can't. Of course, that one always let me sing songs in the class, but she wouldn't say that. But, and so the, the counselor was so confused, she just adjourned the meeting. 
My brother would tell me this stuff. They can't figure out what's going on with you because some of them say you're good and some of them say you're awful. So they didn't know how to decide what to do with you. But you know what the key was? The ones that cared about me and treated me as though they loved me, I behaved perfectly. And the ones that were always scolding me, I earned that scolding. I believe that if we know God loves us, our lives obey him out of love, not out of fear, not out of threat. And I'm telling you today, God loves you. He's not looking at you for what he can punish you for, what he can take away from you, what he can send to make you miserable. He's already decided he loves you. And there are no exceptions. Does illness come? Yes. Do we have failures? Yes. Do we lose jobs? Yes. Do we lose people we love? Yes. None of that comes out of God punishing. Because God loves us right through our suffering. What about you? Does knowing God loves you no matter what motivate you to live for him? Hope endures Satan's attacks also by reminding me of my future. Satan attacks our minds to cause us to feel abandoned by God. And that happens when we struggle. You know, I would have to say with, with my grandson having serious uh, health issues, you, we, you have to know God loves you and that this isn't an expression of God's not loving you. This is something that's happened in a fallen world, but it, but it doesn't express the way God feels about us or him. God doesn't, our, our relationship with God is not dependent on what benefits we get from him in this world. Because I can always find somebody that has something better. For me, I can always find somebody that looks better. I mean, look at Scott. I mean, my goodness. So we can always be disadvantaged, can't we? Somebody has more. Somebody looks better. Somebody, God loves you just like you are. He gave you just what you have. But Satan attacks us so that we will feel neglected by God, abandoned by, by him, so we will mistrust his promise to provide a home in heaven when this life ends. And God's given us this Bible to build our trust in him and strengthen our hope of salvation. Look at Romans 15, 4. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And so this is Paul writing. And so he is talking about the Old Testament scriptures. But now since he was writing much of the New Testament, he wrote 16 of the books. So we now have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. How many sentences would it require you? If I said, write the gospel message in as brief a way as you can, how many sentences would you need? One, yeah, easily one. 
So if the gospel message, the entire gospel message, can be written in one verse, which John 3.16 is an example, why do we have a Bible composed of 66 books? You ever wonder that? Because the Bible displays God's faithfulness to keep his promises to his people in varied situations, in different contexts, and in different cultures over many centuries. The Bible was written by 40 different authors over 14 to 1500 years. And these stories of God's trustworthiness provide certainty to us of our hope for eternal life. Because you see, people haven't changed. You know, they lived in different cultures, they lived at different times, they dressed different ways, they wrote on different conveyances. We still reason the same, our emotions are the same, the way we relate to God is the same. And so we see many different examples that people suffered in lots of different ways and yet God was faithful to rescue each one in different ways at different times. Sometimes they were spared from death, sometimes they were spared through death. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. But this life is tough for so many people, including some of you. But it's this promise of absolute freedom from sin and sickness, from problems and pain that sustain us when life is really, really difficult. See, I wish the Bible said that God would perfect this world for you. It doesn't, it doesn't. What it says is in this imperfect world, his presence will surround you and be within you. And it's our confident hope in the future promise of eternal salvation in the permanent presence of God that motivates us to persevere through the trials and troubles that typify life on earth. But here's the thing, we have to get where we can accept that. We have to say this world is not going to be pain free, but I'm going to a place that will be. And we can live with that hope. That's what sustains us. Because sometimes days are hard, aren't they? But we have hope for a day that won't be hard. Does hope for your future sustain you during struggles and suffering in the present? I'm not minimizing this at all, but I'm saying there's enough there's enough in hope to help us continue to walk day by day. I want to close with Hebrews 10, 23. This is a memory verse for this week. I'd like you to stand as we're closing to, to read this off with me.
let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise, to keep all of his promises. You say, I'm not so sure there'll be care counselors here to talk with you, to pray with you, to anoint you with oil. God does heal. We believe that. We're praying for healing in our family, and God does heal. He just doesn't heal in every instant. Now, let me encourage you. Remember, I've asked you to come and pray with us Sunday mornings. All of us, I believe, want revival, but revival only comes with prayer. And so, Next Sunday is the first Sunday. I've asked y'all in the past, come one Sunday, first Sunday of the month. We're right in here. It is 8.15 in the morning, but next week you get an extra hour of sleep. (laughs) So we'll have no excuses. (laughs) Father, help us to strap on the helmet of salvation. Help us to live with hope. Hope of, of salvation with you reminded of your promises by the spirit that you placed within us, Lord. And help us to live each day by faith, filled with the hope, believing, trusting in your promises to us, to the very people that you do love. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One way you can do this is by getting connected at Brookwood. Email us, connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on our connections team. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. If you like what you hear, leave a review so that others can discover how they can have a transformed life in Christ as well. Thanks for listening and have a great week.